Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. This time I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God to two different places for our morning reading. First of all, Psalm 68, and we're going to look at verse 15 through 25. And then I'm going to ask you to turn over into the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4, where we will read verse 7 through 13. So that's going to be Psalm 68, 15 to 25, and then we're going to go to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. And I'm going to go ahead and ask you now to stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 68, verse 15, The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Silah. He that is our God is the God of salvation. And unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. But God shall wound the head of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan. I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea, that thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. Now to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I was thinking upon what to bring forth this Lord's Day, as I came to speak with you, I asked uh, Pastor George if it would be permissible for me to speak about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, this past Thursday, May 18th, marked the 40th day from Christ's resurrection, is what the church typically celebrates as Ascension Day. And as I began thinking about the thought of preaching on Ascension Day, I realized it's an important doctrine for us to preach on, to receive encouragement about, and to be reinforced in faith with respect to it, because, as you may know, the doctrine of the bodily ascension of Christ has fallen into hard times in the modern church. It wasn't that long ago that a leading evangelical magazine explained that many Christian theologians of the 20th century have rejected the idea of a literal bodily ascension of Christ, considering it a crude myth that is impossible to accept in the modern world. One leading New Testament scholar, which virtually every seminary student and pastor in the last 50 to 60 years has been trained under, at least by his voluminous writings on the text of the New Testament scripture, says there's doubtless no instance of the supernatural in the New Testament which makes greater demands on faith than the ascension. And a whole generation of ministers have been trained under people who think this way. That there's no greater challenge to your faith than to believe in such things as a physical, literal, bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. And it got me thinking, more than the incarnation, more than the virgin birth, more than a bodily resurrection. But the new sticking point has become such a thing as a bodily resurrection, which a whole slew of modern theologians want to say has rich symbolic meaning to it. That represents such a snared obstacle to faith that no literal ascension need be believed in. And so this morning, I want to reflect with you from the Word of God upon what it has to say about the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is reinforce in your thinking, which was the very same thinking of the church in the past, and at the time of the Reformation, all the way up to the present, and should always be that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable fact of history and is an inescapable Christian doctrine which has the greatest of implications for the church. It's an historical fact. Christ 
ascended bodily. As you come into our text this morning in Psalm chapter, or rather Psalm 68, I would fix your attention on verse 18, where we have a bold, strong statement made by the psalmist when he says, Thou hast ascended. Thou hast ascended. And we should take a moment to contextualize this particular comment. And one way we gain entry point into this bold assertion of verse 18 is to drop down in our reading to verse 24, where we read, They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. Most scholars believe that this is the entry point into understanding the narrative backbone of Psalm 68. And what they would say is that David here is beginning to give his own voice and testimony. And one of the testimonies that he brings forth is that there's a group of worshipers here. And you see them referenced in verse 25 as the singers who went before and the players on instruments and the damsels playing with the tendrils. And one of the things that we note here is that David says something. They have seen thy goings, O God. Now most would take that uh, as a reference to the testimony of the forward march of Psalm 68 from verse 1 where we see this very powerful declaration, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. That's a quotation from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. It is the typical declaration which was made when the camp set out in the wilderness journeying to move from one place to the next at the command of God. And so one way to read the the unfolding of the sweep of historical events cataloged here in Psalm 68 up to, let's say, verse 15, is to see it as a forward march from of redemptive history from Mount Sinai to the conquest of the land of Canaan. And so what they're doing is recounting the goings of God. But you come into the second part of verse 24, you see an addition here. Even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary... And so it would seem we've moved on from an historical recounting of events that happened over the course of hundreds of years from Sinai until settlement in the land. And now we've arrived at a particular redemptive historical moment. And that moment is the enthronement of the ark in Jerusalem, the tabernacle. It came after David had conquered Jerusalem and wrestled it out of the hands of the Jebusites It came after he had conquered the neighboring enemies and consolidated his rule. And now David is recognized as the king over all of Israel, both of Judah and the rest of the tribes. And in that moment, David, under the direction of God, determines to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from the house of Obed-Edom so that it would find its resting place in Jerusalem. There's various Old Testament narratives that recount it, but we know there was shouting and singing and trumpets and harps, and it was a massive event with throngs of crowds gathered together. It was a national celebration of the likes of which hadn't been seen before in Israel. And the reason is obvious, because it marked the fulfillment of the promise of God's covenant of grace. 
You see, at the heart of the covenant of grace, God does not just promise to be our God and take us to be his people. That's rich enough all to itself. But there's a second element of the covenant of grace. And that second element of the covenant of grace is, and I will dwell in their midst. The law made a provision for it. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Once they had rest from their enemies in the land, God would choose a place for his name to dwell. I submit to you that Psalm 68 is about the poetic recounting of those historical events and what it meant for the people of God. Beginning in verse 15, you begin to see the narrative push forward now towards the moment of God taking his place through the Ark of the Covenant in Zion. And by the time we get to verse 18, we have the historical fact stated and boldly asserted, Thou hast ascended. Perfect tense verb with continuing results. It indicates a settled condition. The Lord has ascended into his holy mountain. It's of interest to us now as we keep one finger here in Psalm 68 and move forward now into the New Testament to to, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, that Paul reaches for this very verse. Look at it for yourself. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. He's citing from the Old Testament. We know that from the very formulation where it says, when he saith, a reference to the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But emphatically, Paul declares that this verse finds its fulfillment in what? In Christ and in his ascension. And we know Christ is the subject in view because verse 9 says, He ascended, and it speaks of him descending in terms of incarnation, and then it reverts back to the ascension and moves forward to talk about how the ascended Christ gives gifts to his church. But what the Apostle Paul is clearly doing is interpreting that event as a type of Christ's antitypal fulfillment of it in the New Testament in his own bodily ascension. He asserts it here, he declares it as a fact, But what does it mean? One of the best ways to see what he meant by it is to turn to Acts chapter 1 and to verse 9 and following. And here we read, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into the heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into the heaven. And then verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. If we would unpack and unfold the meaning of what Paul meant in in Ephesians 4.8, when it refers to Christ having ascended into heaven, here it is in this historical narrative. And, and we serve, first of all, of the timing of it. And the timing is indicated in verse 9. It says, after he had spoken these things. And, of course, that is a reference backwards to, to the 40 days in between his resurrection and ascension. 
The book of Acts tells us during that time, Christ showed himself alive by many infallible truths and taught them extensively about the kingdom of God. And it was at the end of that earthly bodily stay of Christ and his glorified and resurrected body that we're told here in verse 9 that he went out with his disciples and he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. We know the location. The text doesn't specifically tell us, but verse 12 gives us enough of the seeds, right? Because it says, then returned they unto Jerusalem from the Mount Kabbalah. Clearly, the narrative would lead us to believe that the place where Christ ascended was the Mount of Olives. <coughs> the Mount of Olives was um, a place or a location just outside of Jerusalem. It's described here as being a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, and contemporary sources would tell us that that would be uh, just about a mile away. So the picture here is is, uh, that of Christ leading his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and from that particular location, ascending into heaven. And the audience, of course, is the disciples, as verse 9 makes clear, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. Well, who is the they? Clearly, the they is the apostles and the disciples, the ones who are charged to be his witnesses in verse 8, unto the very uttermost parts of the earth. But now the key element to all of this is mode. Mode. Notice the mode of ascension was bodily. The physical or bodily nature of the ascension is expressed very clearly here because it says the very same body that was with the disciples over the course of 40 days is the very same Christ in his body who goes out to this location with the disciples. And notice here the visual aspect of the whole narrative. Just just take this in for a moment. We're told in verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking. We are told a cloud received him out of their sight, verse 9. The posture of the apostles is noted in verse 10, as they were gazing intently. In verse 11, two angels asked the apostles, why do you stand looking into the sky? And then in verse 11 again, he says, just the very same way Christ has left, so he will return in the same way as you watched. There's manifold repetition here, and all of that repetition focuses on what? That which is visual, that which is tangible, that which is bodily, that which could be perceived with the eye. And so the clear meaning of ascension, according to the Word of God, is that Christ bodily ascended from earth into heaven. In one moment, his feet are firmly planted on the ground, And the next, he is clearly, quote, taken into heaven. So first of all, I'd like to just make the assertion here, based upon the word of God, that the bodily ascension of Christ is an historical fact. It's an historical fact. Just as Christ was born of a virgin was a historical fact. Just that Jesus Christ became incarnate was an historical fact. fact. 
we could just add a series of factual events from the life of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, his baptism at the hands of John, and so on. The very backbone of the narrative of the ascension requires us to believe. This is not mere symbolism. Repeatedly, the stress is on the visual nature. It was before their eyes as they looked intently. And across the New Testament, the reality of this historical, literal, physical, bodily ascension is proclaimed. How about over in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost in verse 33, he says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear, for David is not ascended into the heavens. You know, clearly Peter is saying Christ has ascended. And the, and the proof and the evidence of, of the bodily, physical ascension of Christ into heaven is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the tangible, tangible phenomena of the Spirit which everyone is seeing. Paul proclaims it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says that God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. To deny the physical bodily ascension of Christ into heaven would require us to deny every other critical, foundational, redemptive historical fact in the New Testament. Because it's so boldly, clearly, and decisively, and unambiguously stated, he ascended. It's a fact. Yes, it's supernatural, but it's a fact. He was standing on the ground, and he was taken up into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because that happened, it is an essential article of the Christian faith and of our salvation. Just think about it this morning, people of God. This is an essential, redemptive gospel truth. Just as much as Christ becoming incarnate, Christ's active obedience on our behalf, Christ being crucified on the cross, Christ uh, rising from the dead bodily and physically, Christ ascending into heaven is of the same nature and league as all of those facts. If you take one of them away, you take the entire gospel away. To deny it, to deny the ascension of Christ into heaven is to deny the Christian faith. And so we unite our voices with those of the ancient church and beyond as we repeat the Apostles' Creed, which says he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. People of God, the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven marks the apex marks the apex and culmination of the redemptive events of God in Christ. And I know saying that way may seem a little bit strange to our ears because I bet if I were to ask you about Christmas, all here would remember that they celebrated it with joy. If I were to ask you about Easter, which isn't too far in the rearview mirror on the calendar, you would remember it was a day of great celebration and thanksgiving to God for 
his redemptive mercies. But if I asked you what you did last Thursday, 18 May of 2023, you may not even remember what you had for breakfast. But it was the Ascension Day. It's the day in which we mark Christ's literal, physical, bodily ascension into heaven. And it's a date of critical importance because without it, there is no application of redemption to you. Without Christ ascending into heaven and taking his seat at the right hand of God, positioning himself as your high priest, there is no person in heaven praying for you and interceding for you on your behalf. Remember the great consolation of the believer. John spells out in 1 John, he says, if anyone sins, if anyone sins, it's not to undermine the fact that we're going to sin. It's just a way of staying in the original that absolutely underscores and reinforces we all will sin. But he says, for, for comforting and for pastoral reasons, says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sin. And he is interceding in heaven. For our behalf, there is no pleading of the finished work of Christ. There is no pleading of Christ's blood in heaven on our behalf without the bodily ascension of Christ. There is no kingly rule of Christ in heaven, ruling over all of the nations and subduing them that they may be a footstool under his feet. There's no one in heaven who has control of the reins of heaven and earth if Christ hasn't bodily ascended and seated at the right hand of God. There is no subduing the sinner to Christ without Christ having bodily ascended into heaven, taking his seat at the right hand and sending forth the Spirit of God into your heart to regenerate you and to rip out the old, cold, willful, rebellious, stony heart of the flesh and replacing it with what is new. People of God, without the bodily ascension of Christ, there's no hope. And so I want to, this morning, confirm in your thinking that yes, this did indeed happen. Christ indeed was taken out to the Mount of Olives and before his disciples was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And now he is positioned in heaven at the right hand of God where he reigns in power and glory. And so that's our first point. Christ ascended into heaven. Well, let's think now about the implications of that for the church and the first implication, or rather the, first, uh, the main point I want to make, and a few off of this, is uh, Christ bodily absent from the church doesn't mean that Christ is absent from his church at all. Christ is present spiritually with his church to dwell. And I would just have you notice the ideas for yourself in, in Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts from men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. See, even the Old Testament teaches this. The, the typological ascension of the Old Testament makes it very clear 
that the ascension is unto an end. And what is the end of the ascension? The dwelling of Christ with his church. The dwelling of Christ to his church. But you know, we could talk about this in abstraction, I guess, and repeat and rehearse it as a catechism question. That's true enough because the Bible declares it. But, but there's a text that helps us get our hands around it and to sense it. And the text I'm thinking of here is Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, where we're told that Paul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. There's hardly a more tangible and visual, uh, um, a more um, vivid way than grasping this idea of Christ's presence with his church than, than noticing here what Jesus says to Saul. And what Jesus says to Saul, that in Saul's persecuting the people of God, he is persecuting Christ. Notice the bold declaration of verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the connection of ideas is very clear. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. And the reason why to persecute the church is to persecute Christ is because Christ is present with his church. Though he may be bodily in heaven at the right hand, he is at no time absent from us. In fact, he's with us here this morning. According to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, Christ is in our midst now. Christ is the one who, in the call, gathers us to his worship. He may use the voice of the minister, but it's Christ who summons his church to his throne. In the salutation and greeting, which we read this morning from Revelation chapter 1, is Christ greeting you to his worship. In the preaching of the word, Jesus Christ is speaking and giving himself to you. In the administration of the sacraments, it's Christ giving his broken body and his shed blood unto you for your sanctification and growth and grace. And in the benediction at the end of the service, it's Christ saying to you, my blessing rests upon you. Christ is with us. And you know what, people of God, there's something more in here. He's with us when we're not gathered. Christ is not just present with his church when we're gathered together here for worship. Christ is present with his church even when we dismiss. That seems to be the point of Acts chapter 9. Yes, I know that the Apostle Paul was taking arrest warrants from Jerusalem over to Damascus to grab them out of synagogues, but guess where the persecuting took place? It didn't take place in the synagogue. The persecuting took place in the jails in Jerusalem. And you see, that's precisely what Jesus charges Paul with. You are persecuting me by persecuting them. As those individuals lay shackled and beaten and bloodied and bruised for the sake of Christ, as stripes were being laid to their back, as their financial and economic livelihoods were utterly ruined, as their families were torn apart, as they were left destitute and with nothing. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Which means, people of God, that he is not just with his church when it is gathered. 
He's with his church when it is dispersed. He's with you in all of your moments, in all of your afflictions, in all of your sorrows, all of your persecutions, all your temptations, all your moments of fear, all of those moments of processing the difficulties in your life, all those moments of agonizing prayer about things that you wish God would hear you about and help you with. He is with us. He is with his church. And what a marvel it is. Look with me at Psalm 68 to see how the psalmist draws out the marvel of Christ's dwelling with his church. And at first, I admit, it may seem a little strange to us because the language is a bit arcane. But verse 16, Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desired to dwell in. Yes, the Lord would dwell in it forever. Why leap ye, ye hills? What's going on in our text? Well, verse 16 is looking back to verse 15, and the hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. What's the hill of Bashan? Well, the hill of Bashan is a group of very large hills to the north and the east of, of this Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's one of those places that when you stepped outside of your house and you looked off to the distance, you would see a massive mountain with granite peaks covered with snow and lush forestation. And it looked huge and imposing. And in antiquity... The theology of mythology said that that's where the gods would dwell, on the biggest, tallest, mightiest mountain. And yet our text says that the hills of Bashan, the high hills, are what? It says, why leap ye? And the word literally means there, why are you jealous? Why are you envious? The answer is they're envious because though they look from a human perspective to be the mightiest, most massive, rugged mountains of the world, the most high and venerated holy place, God chose Zion, a molehill, a deforested, weak-looking molehill, dusty, and overrun by thousands of years of civilization. He chose the wrong place. And the hills of Bashan are jealous because God chose the unattractive, weak, and pitiful to be the place where he caused his name to dwell. Does that remind us a little bit of the Word of God? Not many mighty not many noble, not many wise, foolish, weak, based, despised. You see, we amplify the grace of God by realizing the wonder of what it is that God himself would dwell with us. Reminded this morning of the soaring and majestic words of Isaiah 57.15. I'm sure you learned this verse on your mama's knee. 
For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Those are powerful words to the people of God of the Old Testament. He doesn't dwell with the Babylonians or the Persians or the Egyptians or the rich cultural heritages of all the rest of the mighty nations of the face of the earth. No, God says to his people, I, the high and holy one that habits and praises of eternity, I dwell with you. Those who are of a contrite and humble spirit, those who've humbled themselves under the knowledge of their sin, and with faith have come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Jesus says this morning, people of God, he dwells with you. What else does Jesus do as the bodily ascended Christ? He adorns his church with gifts and graces. We need to move more quickly at this point, but I would just point out from Ephesians chapter 1 that the context of Paul's application of of Christ's ascension is the fact that Paul is asserted in verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace, gifting, right? That's what he's talking about there. Not saving grace. He's already talked about that in chapter 2. He's talking here about spiritual gifts where he says here, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ. And then notice here in verse 8, wherefore he saith, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captives and gave gifts to men. You see here the connection that Paul makes between Christ and his bodily ascension and his gift-giving capacity and role. It's because of his ascension that he now showers his church with his gifts and his graces. If you're to look down in your text, you'll notice, for instance, in verse 11, after just referencing the ascension in verse 10, he goes on to say, and he gave some... Notice again the connection between the ascension and the gifting of the church. And he spells out the gifts here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The word gifts, in other words, the institution of the office of the ministry of the word is the direct result of Christ's bodily ascension into heaven. And I want you to notice, people of God, what the result of that giving of the ministry of the word is for the church in verse 13 till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of Christ. How do we arrive there? How do we arrive there? And Paul is perfectly clear about it, that the way we arrive at being a perfect man according to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ is through what? gifting the gifts he gave to his church particularly here the gift of the ministry of the word is the means which christ uses to multiply grace so as the great potter and molder of clay he takes us and shapes us again into his glorious image piece by piece and bit by bit The bodily ascended Christ blesses his church as he pours out his gifts and his grace. And then finally, 
He preserves and defends his church. Come back with me to Psalm 68. And I wish I had so much more time to expound. There's uh, tremendous depths here, but come with me into this last portion and we'll go quickly here. But I want you to notice a great phrase here. And, and, I, and I highlight it for the encouragement of your faith this morning. And what I'm thinking of is in verse 19. He has asserted and stated the ascension of Christ and his dwelling. And then look at verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us up with benefits. Loadeth us up with benefits. The verb there, loadeth, is in the present tense. It's a continuous action. And what the psalmist is saying is that the implication and result of Christ's ascension into heaven is that he is continuously, daily, and perpetually loading. That's a powerful term. It doesn't say sprinkling. It doesn't say doling out one by one. It says loading. Heaped up, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing to you. What a mercy. Rooted in the ascension of Christ. And then finally we see defends his church, verse 21. And it's kind of graphic language, but, you know, that's okay. This is God's word. It's inspired. It's holy. It's true. It's offensive to the world. I understand that. But we serve God, not secular humanism. Verse 21, but God shall wound the head of his enemies. And it's much more graphic than that. Y'all remember the story of Jael? The the armies of Israel were trying to chase down Sisera. And this fair lady of the mountains uh, happened to be, uh, you know, minding her own business and who should come across her path but... Sisera, this uh, bold Canaanite general, and she uh, charms him and sweet talks him into taking a nap after she gave him, I think, some goat's milk or something. Nothing says Mountain Dew like goat's milk, right? And uh, lays him down and takes, uh, after he goes to sleep, a gigantic hammer and a nail and drives it right through his head, through his skull, into the dirt. And here's what the word says in Judges 5.26 smashed his head. Same verbs, same words, same language. It's Psalm 68, 21. Graphic. But another place we read the same thing is in Genesis three fifteen, where we're told in the first preaching of the gospel that this is exactly what Christ would do to the serpent. He would crush his head. It is the very same language. It is a language of violence. It's martial imagery. And it's a fatal blow. And the thing that the psalmist says that the ascended Christ does for his church is smash the heads of our serpentine enemies. I don't know about you, people of God, but to me this morning I find hope and encouragement in that because the enemies which seem to be surrounding the church look mighty. They look mighty. And in every single square we hop on from here to our homes and back into the store and to work and wherever else, we are constantly stepping in the square of people who hate Christ and his church. It's discouraging. And the word of God says that Jesus will wound the head 
of his enemies. There's a purpose for his ascension to the right hand of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he will reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. That's our hope. That's the promise to the church that the ascension of Jesus Christ is about conquest. It's about victory and thus it is about hope. Some days we may wonder, what's the point? Some days we may wonder, what's the point? Why make a stand for life? Why make a stand for Christ? Why make a stand for truth? And the answer is located right here in verse 21, that the bodily ascended Christ will smash his enemies. And so then we take the exhortation of the angels to the disciples as they stood looking up into heaven as Jesus was taken bodily into heaven. They said unto the disciples, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? What were they supposed to do? They weren't to reform a form of retreat and put up a bunch of pup tents and sleeping bags and roast marshmallows around a fire on Mount Olivet until Jesus returned. No, he had given them a charge, which was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth to do nothing less than to make the nations his disciples. And so based upon the bodily ascended Christ doing his work to defend and preserve his church, the exhortation to us is the same. Let's not stand gazing, but let's get to work. Baptizing it all in prayer, direct it all by the word, do it all in the power of grace and the Holy Spirit. But let's get to work. Because the high and holy one who inhabits the praises of eternity dwells with you and with us. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.